And he started to say how my partners wanted to fire me in 99. We did an offsite. We're in Cabo by the fire. One of my partners like, so you're not going to be part of the next fund. But by the time the next fund came, like the world had blown up. All their deals that they thought were so incredible, you know, deflated. And so they came back to me and said, yeah, great. I mean, they acted like they'd never said it. Welcome to the 58th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. I am your host, Logan Bartlett, a partner at Redpoint Ventures. And what you're going to hear on this episode is a conversation that I had with Annie Lamont. Annie is the founder and general partner at Oak HCFT. And before that, she was a general partner at Oak Investment Partners. Uh, Annie is one of the icons in the industry. She entered back in the early 80s and has seen a bunch of different market machinations as well as the industry change over the years. And so interesting to get her perspective on what was going on, uh, what is going on in the industry today, uh, how it compares versus different uh, corrections that have happened, as well as uh, how she found her way into the industry, her interactions with Steve Jobs, among a bunch of other things. So really appreciate Andy coming on, someone I've always looked up to in the industry. Uh, before we get into that, just a brief plug. Uh, I'm going to be more specific in my request. <clears throat> um, on whatever platform you're listening to, if you could give a five-star review, uh, that would be much appreciated. And then also specifically, we're trying to grow the YouTube channel. So if you're not subscribed, please subscribe to YouTube. Uh, Five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to and subscribe to YouTube. That's all we're looking for uh, out of doing this. So thanks everyone for listening in. And now you'll hear uh, this episode with Annie Lamont, general partner from Oak HCFD. Annie Lamont, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Great to be with you, Logan. I have heard your name uh, in the industry as one of the icons that has been uh, defining, I guess, venture capital for for a long time. But it's a pleasure. This is this is the benefit of having a having a podcast. Is I get people that otherwise it might be a little weird to say, "Hey, can I meet with you?" But if I say, "Hey, I have a podcast," uh, then it sounds very credible and uh, like a reason to get to meet people like yourself. So thank you for coming on. You you are credible. <laughs> I, uh, so, so in terms of maybe we'll just start with the market right now. I think it's an interesting yeah. time in the ecosystem and, and you've, you've seen different, uh, bubbles and bursts and euphoria and, uh, people in a desolate mindset and all of that, I guess any, any perspective on, does this remind you of anything like the cycle we're in right now? Uh, it does, have you been able to draw analogies or comparisons to either prior experiences you've had? Sure. Yeah, it's interesting because some people say 2008, 2001. You know, I think the interesting thing is like about 2008 was that really wasn't, um, did not impact entrepreneurial pride. It was really about a macro environment, not about the micro environment that we all live in in terms of the trends and tail, you know, tail, headwinds and tailwinds. So that really had very little impact, I thought, on the, on the venture industry. I mean, maybe it made valuations, you know, somewhat lower. Uh, which was good, maybe not great for entrepreneurs and good for, you know, for VCs. Um, it's definitely most analogous to, to 2001. And, you know, I think most people who lived through it were like last year, two years ago, I was like, is this 99 or 2000? You know, we know it's coming, you know, but, and where are we exactly? And, uh, and obviously it was more like 2000. Um, so I think the difference is that there were so many, there were obviously great companies created then, you know, Google, Amazon. I mean, they wouldn't, exist without these manias or bubbles, right? Where massive amounts of money go to, you know, go to fund innovation. And so I generally think manias from that perspective are a good thing um, because sometimes you wouldn't have those, you know, some of those great companies. Um, but the, 
there were so many companies that did not have real business models then. The internet wasn't mature. And I do feel like now there were there were lots of great companies created. It was a really amazing time. Some of those companies are really products and those companies will be you know, bought and merged into other companies that are really more platforms. Um, but there are a lot of good companies now or companies, they're two parts, they're two parts, good companies that just need to, you know, manage themselves with discipline. They're going to keep growing. They've got, you know, there's need in the market. They got good management teams. Uh, there are product companies that are just small companies. They'll never be big companies. They should be part of something else or really like features and products. And then there are other companies that raise a lot of money that may not actually have the right business model. And those like, that's where you got to be bold. I mean, I think this, that's the hardest thing for boards. You know, you've got 200 million in the bank and you've got a business model that doesn't really work or gross margin that's just never going to get there. You know, like blow it up. I'm like, take the money, either give the money back or blow it up and do something with it that actually works. And I think that those, that's the hardest place to be right now. For sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, and I'm sure. People are having a reckoning right now of which bucket they're they're in. People probably right. deluded themselves into everyone was in the uh, the first bucket you talked about, and yeah. and now you know some might realize they're in the second bucket, and people don't hope they hope that they, they aren't in the third. But if you are in the in the third in that situation, like if we're talking to a founder that's either in the second or the third, and they're not just going to need to wait it out, do you think? Uh, or are they are they better served from a dollar standpoint and a time standpoint, just shutting it down now rather than trying to take the risk of, or selling or whatever whatever you end up right. doing rather than incinerating cash? You see it's cash. You see it oftentimes in biotech that people are trading for yeah. less than the cash they have on the balance sheet. And I I imagine we have some people in the venture market, some companies that fit into the same bucket. Would you actually, in a weird way, encourage those companies to? to quit and, and start anew? I think it depends on the, the team. Like, if there is there a vision, right? Is there something else they think they can do worthwhile with it? Do they have the team that can actually execute, execute it? Do you know, do you have a good CEO? I, I think that's so much of it. So if you've got money and you've got the will and you're brave enough to do it, you know, just blow it up and keep going with the money you've got because it's hard to raise. Um, and in other situations where you don't have a team that you trust, then I, I, you know, I just saw one recently. They literally took the money. They didn't take it back. They actually took the money and they invested in another startup with the money. A startup did this. A startup took the money and kind of transformed into a, a VC of sorts with that money. Yeah, I mean, the investors really, the board took that money and you know invested it in another company. So that was unique. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. One of the interesting things I think that happened in the internet bubble that you did, uh, and I guess this is a question for venture capitalists these days, young, young people in the industry, maybe maybe you went all in on crypto and the industry, uh, the asset class hasn't proven to be what, it, what it's going to be. I think I've heard you use the term repotting yourself, going yeah. from biotech to healthcare. Can, can you tell that story of like what was going through your mind? You're a biotech investor, I guess, uh, in, in 99, 2000, and you say to yourself, Hey, maybe this isn't going to be the place I want to, I'm going to be in the long term." And so you kind of pivot, uh, to, to healthcare and FinTech. Yeah, definitely. So we, I, I did biotech for about 15 years and it was an amazing, I mean, think about it. You know, it went from, I mean, Genentech, I'd be introduced introduced to early in my career when I joined Oak Investment Partners in 82, we founded Genzyme, 
and then had been involved with a number of uh, great, you know, Cephalon, Alcurmies, Lexion, we'd backed, you know, a whole host of companies. But the problem was by 99, 98, there were about know, two or 3,000 public biotech companies, and there were five approved products at that point. And you could just see that the, the, the momentum was being lost in that, you know, in that market because people just assumed that because a biological would be easier to get through the FDA, would be more likely to be a successful drug than a chemical entity. And it, and it wasn't all that much easier at that time. And we hadn't, you know, gotten, gotten into the, you know, sort of the, the incredible uh, research and uh, that we have now that's creating, uh, you know, many more drugs that actually work. So at that point, you're, you're talking about looking at the advent of the internet in 99 and you're looking at funding for biotech slowing and you're thinking, okay, I, I got to do something different. Um, I had partners who were like, why, why bother with healthcare at, at all? You know, like we're making 50, hundred times on a, you know, e-commerce company or something that's about eyeballs in 99, 2000. And you're thinking either my career is potentially over you know, if they think healthcare is not worthy, you know, if you can make a 10 X, it's not worthy. Um, and, and you've got like, wow, I don't, I think the next decade in biotech is really, really going to be hard. And I think it's very difficult because people feel like, well, this is my area. This is what I'm known for. This is my expertise, you know, and then they just, they just keep doing the same play, you know, like I'm just going to keep investing in biotech and hoping it works. And I think like those that, that survived and there are a lot of people that just Fall, fell out of the industry. Venture capitalists that don't, you might have named into, you know, 99 of done, doing biotech and by 2010, they were out of the business. There were some that kept playing a little bit and survived enough to 2010 to, you know, then have another great run. But I just got out, you know, and I, and there were two, I mean, there was, there were, there were a couple of impetuses to that. And one is market, I thought was going to be really bad too. I felt like the advent of the internet and I, you know, drugs, are amazing things, but as a VC, you're really like, you're, you're raising money all the time. That's what you're doing. You're helping a company raise money all the time because there are only so many ways that you can impact the progress of research uh, as a VC. And I just thought, you know, we have a broken healthcare system uh, and I've lived it personally. And I, you know, I think we all have in different ways. And it just felt like, I just want to like, let's think about technology enabled solutions and services you know, I'd invested in Cena Health in 2000. It was the first cloud-based healthcare company. And I just thought, I just want to fix the system, lower costs, improve outcomes. If that's my mission, I can I can buy into that. I can be really excited about that. I imagine, I mean, you're doing this after or in the throes of, was this decision made before the big internet bubble burst or was it, or was it immediately after? You know, it was actually before. That part was before because I was a bit no man's land. You know, I wasn't, Sort of all the big wins in 98, you know, 98, 99, 2000 were in telecom or the internet, you know, and it was sort of like biotech, healthcare. It was like, what's that? Who cares about that? <laughs> the intuitive thing or the logical thing that I think most people would do is glom themselves on to the, to the internet. And, and Oak, for, for people that don't know, and we'll talk a little bit about the history of Oak's HGFT, but Oak was one of the iconic internet uh, right. investors as well as retail, right? And and you guys had investments like Whole Foods and Office Depot and and uh, and PetSmart and a bunch of stuff in the, the retail side and then Kayak and Seagate and a, a bunch of stuff on the internet side. So I assume the, the 
the intuitive thing would have been to glom on to this internet thing, right? And so what was the, was that just a crowded space and you were like, I'm going to seem me too-ish and jumping into uh, that area uh, rather than picking my own lane? Yeah. I mean, I did one or two things. Flues with Whoopi Goldberg that was like online currency. So that was like the beginning of like FinTech exposure. But no, I mean, I just, I had, I really, you have to invest in things you actually care about. And I just felt like I cared about healthcare. I cared about fixing the system. I, I'm sort of one of those people that feels like, why bother be a venture capitalist if you're not actually improving things or creating innovation for good? So that was my passion. I, I did, you know, and I felt like I could hopefully weather the storm uh, in terms of the returns. I mean, you just knew that this couldn't last, you know, the bubble in it and the internet, you know, couldn't last and it didn't. So I was glad that I had, you know, taken at least the internet and thought about it in a different way in terms of technology enabled services and solutions and, you know, using software on the cloud. So that was, that was my take on it. Like I could be, you know, and use it, you know, have an internet take in healthcare. Yeah, no, it's impressive. I mean, the the people that didn't do what you did, I imagine your peers in in biotech uh, that you were you were collaborating with back then are names we've long since forgotten, right? Yeah. Uh, just because the, I mean, maybe they some of them probably waited it out, but but by and large, the people yeah. that didn't innovate there, it's a it's an interesting uh, thought that I'm sure a lot of young VCs are are reckoning with right now if they picked a lane or a category that just doesn't seem sustainable, right? When I look around, the the people that I grew up with in the industry, a lot of them have have risen to to you know be be partners or managing directors or general partners at firms. And I would say it's not because I was very good at picking friends. Uh, it was because we were all collaborating on software deals, right? right. And, and right. that right. happened to be a good thing to be doing uh, yeah. from 2013 to 2022, right? There's this survivorship bias that yeah. that ends up seeping in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you think about think about clean tech, you know that was something was I don't know maybe 2000 to 2010. Anybody who's doing clean tech in that decade was wiped out. You know, yeah. And so timing is everything, right? You do have to pick your you know pick your spots, but you do have to. I think this repotting. I mean, it's one of the reasons I also did a hedge in fintech. You know, in 2002, started the fintech group because I thought one of the tailwinds were. Were there, um, but it was also like a hedge on not only being a, a healthcare investor, um, but it's also about intellectual curiosity, right? I mean, you've got to like be, get excited about new areas of interest and learn new things. And uh, I mean, it's the beauty and like, the amazing part of our career, right, Logan? It was just so much fun to learn about new things and to grow um, and stay alive. So yeah, no, it's. It, I mean, if you're not innately curious about what it is. Like if you're doing something, one of the things I always think about is if you looked at, I forget who told me this, maybe Eli Gill uh, said, or I think it's a Keith Raboy thing. We, we talked about it on the episode, but if you looked at the MBA groups, people that graduated from uh, HBS or GSB or whatever it is uh, in any given year, and you followed the path that they pursued, that actually is the top of most cycles, right? Because it's the hot new thing and you're getting into AI today and crypto last year and you know you, you would have gotten into the internet in, in the 2000s or whatever. And so that's actually, uh, if you're chasing what's hot, 
you're you're probably too late and inevitably you're going to be behind the curve. And so yeah. finding kind of sniffing out the right balance of your own personal passions with uh, what you what you actually think could accumulate value over some period of time in the future is the the difficult thing to figure out. I I, I was lucky enough that software was not something I was innately uh, interested in originally. I don't think kids too many kids grew up thinking like SaaS is a uh, is a thing, but uh, I kind of got forced into it and then fell in love with the different elements of it, right? Yeah. So that's one of the things when, whenever anyone asks me about my career path, I always say like, listen, I'll tell you, I don't think it's particularly informative or helpful because all of those doors that I walk through have since shut, right? And you're gonna, maybe you'll, you can extrapolate some lessons from it, but the specific advice of how I did it, the tactics, that's not gonna be particularly useful. Right, no, yeah. it's true. Now, what about the state of the uh, the venture industry today? So we've raised a bunch of uh, capital as an asset class, right? Uh, and this, in that regard, is probably most similar to the internet bubble as well, in that you have these firms that uh, yeah. 2x fund size from one fund to the next, right? And in some ways, uh, maybe I'm a little biased in... Uh, and obfuscating some of the blame from the venture capitalists themselves. But we saw the dynamic, like LPs were very much, they had a bunch of money that they wanted to put to work and they were trying to figure out, hey, I want to be 10% in the venture asset class. And now because publics have traded up so much, I'm down to 6%. And so I need to give you $100 million or whatever. So I don't entirely blame venture capitalists. Like it is it is this kind of circular loop that exists in the asset yeah. class. Yeah, but yeah. it's a problem that we've, we've all kind of uh, participated in, in some way. What's your perspective on, on how that's going to play out in the next little bit? Like there were firms that actually gave back capital back in the internet bubble. Do you think that's something that's going to play out here? I don't think that's going to play out here um, because I do feel like obviously people were doing one year and 18 month cycles. So I do think it will just extend the cycle. We'll go back to more of the normal, you know, three year, maybe even four year cycles of investing the money. Um, so I think it's like, you know, raising multiple funds, right? Um, I also think it's like brand is different now um, in terms of having scale. You know, there's some obviously early stage funds that have made impact that are smaller funds that are well known in, in the Valley, like yours, um, that um, are, uh, you know, that will continue to have brand and power. But I think for, you know, for us, I mean, you know, we invest all the way from seed to late stage. And you know, I think the reality is having having money is an advantage. You know, when you are, for example, starting something, funding it all the way, not worried, not, not as worried now about other people's money, uh, funding companies. You're doing consolidations, right? There are going to be a lot of companies that are products that you want to fold in so that you can like own a category. Um, so I think there's there's advantage that you know to having money. Um, I just, I don't see people giving money back. I do yeah. think obviously that it's going to be slower. Fewer funds will come to market. Uh, there will be less money available, but I, you know, I expect in three years, three and four years that people, you know, public markets will have returned. The balance between private and public will be back. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, now you've probably restored the balance between entrepreneur and finance, you know, the money, the money in the makers is now probably in a more appropriate place. Uh, whereas before, you know, look at FTX. I mean, the problem with that is in part, it's just fraud, but you know, sometimes you just can't prevent against that. Um, but you also had so much power with the entrepreneur that, you know, 
VCs, investors couldn't get access to information in the way they should have, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, and you have people creating podcasts to differentiate themselves. And so it's, uh, you know, we're, 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 we lived in very strange times, it seems. No, I, uh, I agree. I, the one thing I think of people potentially giving back, the crypto asset class has collapsed so much and the funds yeah. got so high that yeah. I think Founders Fund, uh, I guess, announced that they were going to cut their early stage fund in size and the tactics of it are interesting. Those dollars are, I guess, rolling into the next fund. And so, um, I think that's an interesting thing that kind of guarantees their next fundraise as well. And But it's an interesting sort of leading by example that they're doing. The crypto ones are the ones that I think are probably the most analogous to the internet bubble. Not to say I, I happen to believe there's not going to be a ton of equity value created in, in that asset class, but it has collapsed in pricing. And so you, you expect some of those people to start... Uh, I don't know, figuring out ways that they're going to be able to use the capital in, in, in a different structure than principally investing it over some short period of time. No, it's true. Well, you also see, I think, people leaving those funds, right? So when you don't have the people to invest it or the conviction around it, um, then, then you've got a problem. Yeah, we're kind of batting out of order on originally what I thought through uh, as as what we talk about. But I am curious on the you, you touched on the the strategy of of Oak HCFT and how you how you approach seed to late stage, and it's unusual, right? We, at Battery Ventures, uh, where I was before, we had one big fund, and it, there's there's tremendous advantages, I guess, in diversification that you can have. If one thing is a little out of whack from a pricing standpoint, you can go pick the other thing. I will say also LPs don't necessarily uh, absolutely love that they don't know where their exact dollars are going into, right? And so for people that don't appreciate this, like uh, LPs think about this, how much exposure do I have to early stage venture? How much exposure do I have to late stage venture? How much exposure do I have to healthcare or life sciences mm-hmm. or software mm-hmm. or crypto mm-hmm. or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And when you start bundling all it together and saying, hey, we're going to give you back some version of this, but it, it, and you try to give guidance around it, it gets difficult on their side, right? To, to say, well, how much exposure do I have? So what was your thought? Was this actually one of the things from the founding that you thought, hey, we're going to do all aspects of the capital stack or what What led you down that path? Yeah. I mean, we've been doing that for the last 20 years, even in my old firm. And I think, well, I don't like to lose. Um, so I don't want to do all early. <laughs> yeah. I just, because it's our mentality to make everything work. You know, and that just doesn't work if you're doing all early. And I, and I think we really came from domain. Here's our domain expertise. We want to be the best healthcare and the best fintech investors. You know, how do we do that? Well, you do that by like knowing spaces really well and then picking the best companies. And that may be there's an idea and there's a need and nobody's solving it. And we love this entrepreneur. So we're going to do it, go early. Or look, there's the best company. We're now seeing that. And they're a $20 million company or $40 million company. And this is their model. And so we want to be aligned with that particular entrepreneur company. And so we really just wanted to go after the best company in each opportunity in each space. Uh, and we felt like the way to do that was to be able to do any stage. And I all, you know, I just think mentally, you cannot be a great growth investor if you don't know what's coming from early. Because, you know, it used to be, oh, you're worried, you know, some old legacy investors worried about, uh, you know, in New York, a, a mid-sized company. The reality is, is now you got growth companies that need to be worried about something that's coming four years after them or five or six, because, they could be right dislocated by something new that's happening. So you actually need to understand. I think what is happening 
early and late to do the best. And often growth companies are also consolidators. So we've been very helpful to some of our companies that we know, like every company that's been created in this space, we know it well, we know, you know, where the inflection points are. Um, so then we're helpful with these, you know, some of these aggregation strategies. Um, and to your point in LPs, we give a range. It's like, we're going to be 20 to 30% early. And we're going to be, um, you know, in fintech and healthcare, it's generally going to be because we can put more money in healthcare you know, services companies more safely, you know, sc- and scale them, especially in the, you know, sort of payer side, payer provider side. Um, so that tends to be 30 to 40% fintech and, you know, 60% healthcare. Yeah, it, it all uh, people don't care too much about the sausage making as long as it comes out delicious on the other side, right? And so I imagine based on your returns, it's it's worked out generally well that they they they've stopped asking quite as many uh, oh. questions. But the stage thing is interesting. I, I I'll joke that like it's it's better to be early than late, but it's best to be right, not wrong, right? right. right. It's, exactly. You know. If you're getting in at $500 million valuation versus 50, sure, I'd prefer 50. But I'll tell you, if yeah. you're in the leader in the space, there's much more accumulating advantages that go along the way with being in that company than necessarily the valuation, getting a cheaper, better deal, which is a little counterintuitive versus some of the other non-venture uh, asset classes, right? Where price is such a sensitivity. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And I also think like our hit rate like in seed is very good because- you're not feeling like I can do 15 this year. You know, I can do 15 seeds or 15 startups. You're pretty particular about the ones you do. And so your hit rate's very high. And I feel like, you know, I get to ask this over and over again, but if you look at seed startup companies, I think most of those you really thought were, you know, the ones that ended up being truly great, you probably had a pretty good idea when they started, they were going to be truly great. And it's, you know, and it's the others like, eh, well, you know, like, why don't we try this? you know, that, that end up not working out as well. Totally. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, thought exercise because for you, right. The time, every venture capitalist is kind of constrained by their, by their time and the the amount of diligence they can do and the number of boards they can sit on and all of that. And so for you to do an incremental slot, even if it's a $5 billion check versus a $50 million check yeah. that while, while the dollar weighting is very different, the yeah. time weighting might even be higher to the $5 million check. Mm-hmm. And so your conviction yeah. on doing those seeds might even be yeah. higher than, than the later stage deal because yeah. it, it need, you know, you're going to have to spend a lot of cycles working with that business to help it get off the ground. And so you better be pretty passionate about the founder and the mission and all that stuff versus other people that kind of do seeds as a occasional element. I think it ends up being a, a rounding error, right? Because uh, they, they don't treat it like a real investment per se. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's 100%. Um, also that we, we've got a number of repeat entrepreneurs, so that's super helpful. I was going to, I was going to touch on that. So, so you guys, you've been fortunate enough to work with uh, a bunch of different uh, people that uh, I think have, have come back to you right from one, one, fun to the to the next maybe talk a little bit about uh how that's how that's worked out is that a purposeful strategy or when x person just raises their hand and comes back around it's a it's a no-brainer yeah i think i mean it's very purposeful and i think it's it is the most satisfying thing about being a venture capitalist is the relationships you develop with your entrepreneurs and so when the great ones come back um i you know i think we're probably most proud of the fact that i think of we have worked with so many great entrepreneurs and if they do start a new company, I'm proud to say, I can't think of one that hasn't come back to us. 
uh, to fund them. And, you know, we've got one, I think we've backed four times another, you know, three times. And so it's just, you know, it's one, it's just really fun. <laughs> you, know, you know, these people, you've worked with them for years. Uh, it's super fun. Uh, and your odds of success are very, very, very high. It's interesting. I, I uh, yeah, I, I guess the implicit message is if you backed an oak uh, company, the that uh, the the a repeat founder, that means that uh, that maybe it's been passed on already. So so do your due diligence, I guess, uh, to, to everyone else there. But um, yeah, I mean, these are some of the iconic names in the in the industry, like Tom Lee and Brad Smith and Doug Williams, and just just people that have have built uh, enduring companies and then maybe sold them or took them public or or, or whatever it is. Have you? Have you found a, uh, I guess, of the commonalities of these people beyond just having success? Are there anything that stand out in particular? Because I've actually, in a, in a weird way, I've, I've had the most success with first-time founders, right? And I don't know why. It's probably not enough data points to actually extrapolate anything. But I'm curious on like the commonalities of some of these people that you've had a lot of success with. They have to be a Pied Piper, right? I mean, great people. They have to be an A and they have to recognize A's and they have to attract them. So, you know, it starts with that and the people that they choose to have around them. Um, I think they, you know, I hate to say this, but they have to be supremely confident, but not arrogant, right? Because they have to be so confident they're willing to ask any question and then then be able to decide. So they have to be incisive, decisive, but they... You know, but they can't be afraid to ask a million questions on the way. And the ones I really love uh, are just ultimately confident in their ability to make good judgments and opinions. They're not afraid to make decisions, but they are um, supremely, uh, you know, they're just inquisitive and so confident they don't. That uh, they're not concerned about asking questions, right? Um, and I think, you know, you've seen it: relentless, resourceful, just, just hate to lose. You know, they're just not going to lose. Um, so they're going to do everything they can to to win, and um, and they're just fun to work with. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great list of uh, characteristics. I've I've tried to because we're more growth, or I'm I'm more growth oriented. We sort of start product market first, and then end up uh, diligencing the the team and the founders after after that. And so I, I've never been as prescriptive in, in terms of the characteristics that that these these founders tend to have. But that's definitely a, a great list of, of different ones. And uh, the one that I found most helpful is, and, and I guess you touched on this, but is just their iterative learning, right? And that once they touch a stove, they don't go back to the same stove. Yeah. They, they burn their hand. And yeah. it's fine if you make mistakes, but right. don't make the same mistake over and over again and be able to extrapolate one lesson to the next one. I, I think that coupled with like competitiveness together, I, I've sort of found is usually a pretty good recipe. That is true. I, I think when we come about growth and looking at, I mean, business models are like, that, that's sort of a fundamental, that's a given, you know, that has to work. Um, but I do think that, I think the advantage to doing early and growth also is that you don't get confused by numbers. Cause I think sometimes people look at, oh, look at the PL, look at the growing, look at the value, you know, like we're, we're, you know, this is, and they, they rely on that too much and they don't rely enough on the people. Because, you know, things happen, competition comes into play, markets change, you know, are they able to shift and, uh, and drive to a new model if, if required or, you know, new, new product or so I, I think, you know, people is fundamental to me. Totally. And, and if you thought, by the way, if you thought you got it, 
if, if you ever thought you were getting a good deal, uh, like valuations have gone so haywire over the course of the last three years, especially. And yeah. so if, if ever it was, hey, this is a good deal and you did it in the back half of 2020 or in 2021, your multiples were cut, uh, you know, by whatever, uh, 50%, 80%, whatever it is. And so the ability to then grow out of that, like you did not get a good deal. If you did a deal in 2021, you did not get a good deal. Now, maybe it's going to be a good investment because it can grow through right. that and the yeah. founder can execute. But certainly there were no good deals to be had in 2021, right? Yeah, that is yeah. so true. Now, now backing up, uh, so we kind of dove right into it, but uh, so so you're one of six, right, growing up in a small town in Wisconsin? That is true. So what were your uh, ambitions? How'd you end up at Stanford and in tech and uh, may- maybe take us through their early days to uh, to what led you to venture capital? So idyllic childhood growing up. I mean, it's great to be the six because nobody pays any attention to as long as you're doing well in school, you kind of run your own life. Especially the youngest of six, right? Uh, everyone's gotten in all the trouble. It's your parents are much more chill. I'm, I, I'm sure I was the first, I was the oldest. And so I, uh, I was definitely the one blazing. Lots the path. of attention. Yes. yes lots of right. attention. Yes, I know. Yes. No, I kind of raised myself at some point. Um, yeah. And I just, you know, I, I love Wisconsin, but I was, um, I just wanted, I'd never been to California. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. I'd never gone there. Um, my, ironically, my mother had gone her junior and senior year after a junior college East Coast. And uh, so I'd heard of it and I was like, good school, warm weather. So I applied to UVA and Stanford, got into both and decided, you know, never been to California. I'll go, I'll go there. This will be fun. Um, headed out there, uh, political science major. I was your first day uh, in California actually when you went out to, to yeah. enroll? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. Landed. I was like, wait a minute. Cause it's not like you had websites to look at. I was like, it's all brown here. I'm so confused. Where's the Ivy? Where's the red brick? <laughs> you know? It was like a completely like foreign uh, environment to me, but you know, loved it from day one, loved the can do attitude, you know, was sort of growing up, graduated at the time of Silicon Valley, you know, was beginning to explode. Um, and thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I loved law school. I loved I mean, my constitutional theory political science classes. But quickly, after six months working for a law firm, I was based in the basement of a computer, mini computer company that we were defending. They were completely guilty. I was like, wow, I'm a little too righteous to defend guilty clients, but I'm kind of loving working with these the engineers. So I uh, went to work for Hambrecht & Quist, which was a boutique investment bank venture firm. How'd you get exposed to them, by the way? I mean, they were one of the, what was it, the four horsemen of technology right. investment banking yeah. who did all the big IPOs. And uh, I, I'm sure most of our listeners probably haven't, haven't heard of. Uh, haven't heard of it. It was bought by JP Morgan in the, you know, in the mania 2000s. So. But it was an iconic brand, right? Uh, back, back, way back when. Um, what, uh, how, did, how did you get exposure to them? Right. Well, two, two things. It's sort of funny. One of my friends interviewed for the job that I then went to interview for. She said I should do that. And two, my roommate worked for E.F. Hutton at the time, another iconic name that, you know, was gone now. Uh, and he'd come home every night and say, oh, my God, we just lost another deal to Hambrecht and Quest. So I was like, oh, good. I want to go work for them because he's like they were like the tech investment bank venture firm in the city. And so I went, interviewed, you know, was, these are the casual days, you know, the next day you get the job, you know, you show up the following Monday uh, and the first three months we take Genentech and Apple public. Um, and it's just like, oh my God, you're working with these amazing entrepreneurs. Like these people are changing the world. I, I just, 
I got so excited. I just didn't know that work could be so fun and interesting. And, and it was all about people, right? It was all about the, like these people that just saw the world differently. I mean, Steve Jobs was only 18 months older than I was and I was scared to death of him. So I was like, wow, I, I can learn something from these people. And maybe I'm sane enough and grounded enough. I could work with them and, you know, try to help keep them grounded. So. That's great. Any, uh, any Steve Jobs stories from the IPO roadshow or anything that stands out? Oh yeah. Uh, no, he was, he was fierce. Um, so, uh, George Quest, the co-founder of Hamburg and Quest, like I'm literally walking down the hall and he's like, here, come in, you know, like you get to sit down with me. Um, I'm having this, I'm going to have this fight with Steve Jobs. So I want somebody else like sitting there and just, you know, like holding my hand. Um, and so he was trying to convince Steve to wear a suit on the Apple IPO roadshow. Um, and Steve was, you know, wearing his like Apple t-shirt. Uh, he came in, it was like an hour long, like screaming match, you know, uh, where I was sort of in the middle of the, you know, the ping pong ball going back and forth. Um, and I will, I will say George Quist won, you know, like Steve actually wore a suit uh, on it, but it was, uh, it was not easy and his passion and fire over something, you know, as simple as that, um, you know, where he just wasn't, didn't want to do the traditional thing. Uh, and, you know, now people don't have to wear suits. Yeah, exactly. Now, now I, I, I own a, a few suits, but don't, don't wear them very often. And uh, yeah, a venture capitalist once upon a time, I think, I think they had to, I, I actually don't know uh, what the, I guess you tell me, were venture capitalists wearing, wearing suits back in the eighties or something? Yeah, okay. That's what I figured. So, so from Hamburg and Quist, you get exposure to Genentech and Steve Jobs at Apple, and then uh, what was the path from there to VC? So the path in C was me about a year in saying I, I just want to be a VC. That's what I want to do. I've done a couple IPOs. I'm like, you've done one IPO. You, you know, like you, you've done it. Um, and so I wanted to get closer to the entrepreneur. And so what I did, it just it was one. I was just telling all my friends. Because it, this was a period there weren't, I mean, it's not like there weren't you know, women. It was really, there were very few associates uh, in, in venture capital. It wasn't, you know, a later infrastructure of people growing into um, uh, a partnership. Um, so I I just, it's one of those sliding door stories where we walked in at the end of the day, walked in the hallway to get in the elevator. Uh, the elevator opens. It's a friend, Mike Leventhal, who I knew from Stanford, um, walked, got in the elevator. We went out to have a drink. Told him I wanted to be in venture. Uh, the next day, the founder of Oak on the East Coast happened to, he ha actually, Mike happened to call him and say, gee, would you be interested in investing in something called the Victoria's Secrets catalog? Uh, and my uh, par the no, partner um, said, no, but I'm looking for a research associate. And he said, great, I've got the girl for you. And three weeks later, I moved to Westboro, Connecticut. So, wow. So Great. That's a, uh, yeah, they might've died. The return of Victoria's Secret I, on an investment standpoint, I, I don't know how that would have worked out, but probably not associating with Leslie Wexner probably benefited both groups uh, in, in that. I, I think the return maybe worked, but uh, yeah, <laughs> some of the, some of the other stuff didn't, but so, so then you move back to, so you're from Wisconsin, you're yeah. out on the West coast. And uh, it's funny now, I mean, we hear people bitching about like, Oh, I don't want to be in San Francisco. I want to be in New York only. Uh, but uh, I, I assume for you, uh, it, the job was such a uh, high priority uh, that going to Westport, Connecticut was something that you, uh, you were very passionate to do just to get a foot in the door, but it couldn't have been the most happening uh, city to move to as a 23, 24 year old. Right. So what was that like? 
No, no, I, I know. My friends thought I was crazy. You're going to San Francisco, the suburbs of Connecticut. Well, I figured out that it was about, you know, an hour and 15 minute drive to New York City. So I was like, okay, I'll be, you know, I can have weekends there. It was just, you know, there were so few jobs in the industry and I just knew this is what I wanted to do. Like pr- probably, I mean, just to put it in numbers, there were probably like 20 associate jobs or, or 30, like it yeah. was, it was uh, a small handful of opportunities that people were, were willing to take on junior, because uh, the, the, the path was, you know, Vinod Kosla coming over as a general partner. There wasn't this like ascension exactly. that sort of happened at the associate ranks, right? Exactly. It wasn't like, you know, PE firms or interim, you know, where you're growing from, you know, VPs, associate to VP to, so, and, and Oak Investment Partners at that time was one of the larger firms on the, certainly on the East Coast, more well-known ones. So, they had this ambition, you know, to grow a team. Um, so I, you just had to take the, you know, I just felt like I had to take the opportunity um, and move there. And I just, you know, I've never been afraid of trying something new. In fact, I embraced that. So that was uh, obviously ended up being a good choice. Moved uh, six houses down from my now husband. So that worked out well too. Oh, wow. Yeah, just, yeah, I met him the first week I was there through a friend from Wisconsin dating one of his friends. So it just, you know, it's like, no, this is funny how life just, you cannot plan these things. I keep telling my children, you don't, you know, man plans, God laughs, you know, it's just the way it is. Yeah, the, the serendipity of, uh, you probably had friends in San Francisco saying, how are you ever going to meet uh, a husband or something and uh, in Westport, Connecticut, and uh, now now here you are. By the way, is that, or do you, I guess for people that don't know, your, your husband is the governor of Connecticut, right? Are we looking at the... Uh, is this the the governor's residence? No, this is uh he's there and I'm here in uh, Greenwich at our home their home office in Greenwich. Got it, got it. But I do I do spend a lot of time there. I spent a lot more time during COVID, but uh, otherwise we're out and about traveling again. So I want to ask about your responsibilities as uh, the first lady of Connecticut or whatever it is in a second. But so so in entering the industry, I mean, there's there's uh, in addition to being recognized on Midas list and New York Times list and CB Insight list and all these lists as just pure best investor in the world. You, you also, uh, at that time, I mean, even still today, we could talk about the gender imbalance in the industry. But at that time, I assume it was far bigger uh, than, than it is today. I, I don't I don't know the, the stats on it. But was that even on your, how much was that on your radar? Was that something that you were exposed to and trying to get the job? Or was it, was it something that wasn't a, a consideration that you felt any of these implicit biases? I didn't actually think about it. Um, and I, and I think that is generally the way to go is just don't have a chip on your shoulder. And, and I don't, I'd always had great guy friends. I, I just, you know, you come out of Stanford, you're like the world's your oyster, you know? And if there were barriers, I mean, obviously there were biases. I just chose not to see them or I would, um, let's say the first year that I was in the industry and I would go around a male partner. Uh, sometimes people would think that I was the assistant, you know, like some assistant, but, but, but I just laughed because of course, like people's biases are based on 80% of the women they were exposed to were somebody's assistant at that point, like, a, you know, or a secretary, what they call them. It, so, I, you know, very quickly, you know, they know that I'm not, you know, and you just have to prove yourself through knowledge and um, how you carry yourself. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where, if you're not looking for trouble, you know, you can, uh, you can generally move people. And I would say with entrepreneurs, um, I it was almost like a filter, I guess. I didn't think about this, but until later on, but you know, good, 
great entrepreneurs are looking for people that can help them uh, and have money. And at that point, I was probably lucky because the money was, there wasn't as much, there were more entrepreneurs than money. Let's put it that way. And now obviously, you know, it may have flipped in the last decade, but you know, at that time we had the power, uh, we had more power and I would say one of the money, but I think they also, it was like a filter in terms of good guys did, weren't afraid to work with a woman, you know, like it was sort of like this and it was mostly men. There were, you know, the entrepreneurs. Um, and so that wasn't something they were just looking for somebody they liked, somebody they thought would be supportive, somebody that could be helpful. Um, you know, kindred spirit. And I would say most entrepreneurs, I just never thought that that was uh, an, an issue. I've heard you say that maybe being in Westport was also, you were outside of the yeah. group think in some ways. And so your culture might've been a little more insular to just the firm, right? Rather than the, the yeah. broader elements of the industry as well. Definitely. Oh, I think it was a lot easier to be a VC from the East Coast than the West Coast. I think that, you know, the West Coast, um, was a little bit like cowboy culture, maybe more, you know, ta engineering focused. So I think there, I think actually as a woman, it was harder on the West Coast than the East Coast. And you would have maybe thought the reverse just because you think the East Coast would have been more, um, uh, I don't know, but patriarchal or, you know, more formal. Um, but I think in, you know, in the venture industry, we just, we, I, I just didn't feel that in the same way. And I think if you were going to different markets, you know, you're funding companies like I was in healthcare in Boston and Nashville and Atlanta, you know, different parts of the country. Um, you didn't have the, the, you just didn't have the bias that existed, I think, more on the West Coast. Yeah, um, makes sense. And so, so you joined in, uh, what year was that that you, that you originally joined Oak? Uh, 82. 82. And yeah. so uh, then you were there through, when did Oak HCFT actually get going? And can, can you talk through the, the desire to go found your own firm? Oak had become a, a tech a tech group and my group, the healthcare and fintech group. And I think we, there was very little reason to stay connected because we there was no overlap in our portfolios. And I think our view was, the tech group's view was, Jedi Knights, it's just individuals. We're going to do business as, as we've done it in the past. Our view was we want to be the best at these two areas. We've done, you know, we had a great track record at that moment. And we felt like in order to stay the best, you really needed to be a service, you know, entity effectively to entrepreneurs. Like you had to serve them. And that meant you had to create a, create a great talent group. You had to help them with marketing PR. You had to help them with tech. You know, it was, we're in the service industry and we are I've, going to- I've, I've heard you compliment, by the way, Andreessen Horowitz yeah. for, for this, which isn't allowed on this podcast. Complimentary Andreessen <laughs> isn't allowed. But that 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 mindset shift, right? Uh, I mean, they, they were the ones that sort of came out and said, hey, we're going to be much more service oriented, right? So I assume that was some of uh, the thought process as well. You see this going on on the internet side with what Ben and Mark were doing. Absolutely. You know, it's like, wow, this is the evolution. They, I, you know, they let it. I don't know- that they're the best at it now, but um, I, you know, I think they they did open the door to it, and I think it was um, great having been operating people themselves. They knew what they needed and what entrepreneurs should should want and need. So, you know, I just think it's one of those things where it is part of like repotting of industry, rethinking how a firm is organized and how to provide the best support to an entrepreneur in order to remain the best. So, I think that was a key and critical point, and you know, that's we've done. We've gone from three people to almost fifty. Uh, in the last eight years. 
Wow. And, and, and how many on the investment team versus what, what's the, that's the state of the service? Yeah, it's about half slowly. and half really um, in terms of half on the investment teams between healthcare and FinTech and then half and you know, what do we have? Six people in talent, you know, now um, a really strong team there uh, marketing IR, you know, four people, you know, finance, et cetera. So um, it's, I, you know, I, I think that's what has to drive you is like, how do you help these entrepreneurs? How do you, how do they, you know, continue to reinforce with other entrepreneurs that you're a great partner because that's how you win. And I imagine there's concentric circles of competency that exists within uh, healthcare and, and fintech on their own, but then also there's probably I, I don't know regulatory elements. Both those industries are highly regulated in, yeah. in their own yeah, right, yeah. right? So probably some symbiotic uh, overlap there from a service standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about, it, I mean, fintech is. You could say fintech is like 30% of the economy, right? And you could say healthcare is 20% of the economy. We know a lot, but I think having a team is not just about layering of, you know, VPs and associates. It's really about people understand, like there's some people in our firm that understand, uh, they understand the pharma industry and pharma distribution, right? I mean, the whole PBM, pharma distribution, wholesaling, uh, data analytics to pharma, uh, being clinical research and for, you know, pharma. I mean, so there are areas that, that people have are developing as expertises that are very, very deep, you know, and some people, I mean, employer, payer, the whole pay provider area, you know, I don't, I don't know. There are a few of us that you know, probably know more about that area than anybody in the country in terms of, you know, we have like 20 of those companies. You know? Totally. I've been forced to learn more than I want. We have city block in our portfolio. And so I've been forced to learn a little more than I expected on the pay provider model, but it is, uh, it's definitely unique, right? Uh, it requires its own specialization and domain expertise and all that stuff. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And FinTech is a very broad world. So FinTech is a, uh, it, it was a, a, a new term that uh, like, did it exist? Was, was FinTech what you were actually calling it back when you started to go into it yes. or how did you think about it? We did. I mean, 2002 was the very beginning of FinTech. You're right. Most people didn't know what that meant or what it was. There weren't that many companies. I think it was about the time of maybe Bill me later, you know, PayPal had been created, but you know, we had invested in, well, as they said, like Ruby Goldberg and, you know, a currency, uh, online currency. We'd done Paces, which ended up being first data corps, like back uh, essentially their uh, international global payment processing engine. Um, and it just, you know, it's funny. I mean, I did a screen when the world went to hell on like public stocks and looked at where the multiples, like what it held up when everything else went to hell, what it held up. And it was actually like payment processors and anybody having to do with credit, it was just so interesting to look at that and think, well, that's interesting. And it just felt like no, this was going to be like banking, financial services, nothing had been reinvented. Nobody was really applying the internet and consumer friendly, uh, you know, or efficiency to financial services. So it just felt like this was going to be an opportunity. We actually, we went after the unbanked initially, just tried to figure out how to get them basically an opportunity to use the internet, you know, net spend. If you don't have a credit card or a debit card, right, you can't, you cannot reserve a hotel room, you can't rent a car, you can't, you know, buy anything on the internet. So that was one of our first uh, investments in the area. 
How did you go about like both two new categories in some ways? And was it, uh, hey, Annie's going to do this this other bucket of stuff when we talk about like allocation and and time from an LP standpoint? Was this uh, was this just, hey, you're going to get an opportunity, and if if the first one works, we'll let you do another one? Or how, how did this actually work? <laughs> Well, I started you know, did that the healthcare thing was maybe more logical. And then I think, you know, I was I had a bunch of shell shock tech partners, right? At that point, e-commerce gone to hell, telecom didn't look so great. You know, and I was like, okay, let's let's try. We had paces that worked. And so I was like, let me just, you know, get a advice, you know, I got somebody a venture actually it was uh Trisha Kemp, who's now my partner in in fintech at, at Oak. And I said, like, I'll just like, you're not going to know this person's there. We'll just, you know, 1099 this person and, you know, just let me try this. And then, uh, you know, and then our first couple of deals were quite successful. So that just fed on it. It's amazing how uh, if, if you're not successful early, you don't get an opportunity to be successful late, right? Yeah, Better to be lucky early in your career, yeah, I think, than, uh, than <laughs> you don't get an opportunity to try it later. No, 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 it's, it's so true. Yeah, if it doesn't work out. So, so, so now... HC and FT become uh, yeah. the two kind of focus areas for you. And uh, and actually, I guess one tactical question in in, in spinning out the, uh, I guess, do you consider it founding a firm or spinning out a firm? What's the right nomenclature? And then I the mean, brand, yeah, it's kind of both, right? Kind of both, because I think, you know, been part of Oak for so long, it's a completely separate firm. And Oak Investor Partners is not a investing you know entity anymore, but in, you know, OKXFT is a totally separate firm. It's just that people had known us when we, and this part of this, like our entrepreneur, you know, LPs knew us as that, uh, as individuals, the entrepreneurs knew us as that. So it just felt like, and it felt like, okay, it's like an old name. So therefore you, you have credibility out there. I didn't want to, it's funny how like now I feel like rebranding a firm seems a little easier. We could have rebranded it at this point. Certainly, I, you know, could, could have thought that, but I, I think at that time, it just was easy, you know, and then we could have an associate call an entrepreneur, you know, from Oak, Oak HCFT, you know, um, they didn't have to explain like, oh, there's this like new name and a new firm. I remember my first day when I joined Battery, like I, uh, I found just among my friends and people in the industry, I got, I got funnier and smarter and more <laughs> charismatic and all of these things because the domain address changed, right? right. And it is, right. there is this kind of, it's something that, yeah, especially in the last year, everyone's like, oh, yeah. what does brand matter with venture capital and uh, and the commoditization of capital and Tiger Globals and all the hedge funds and, and all of that stuff. But it, there is something in your ability to cut through the noise and resonate with founders, particularly now, as you mentioned, the equilibriums mm -hmm. shifted back a little bit more mm -hmm. in the power balance. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it make, makes a lot of sense. Was there was uh, at the point that you all left was Oak, had they already made the decision that they were going to keep go going? And so the brand you were able to like the I IP itself or whatever you want to call it, like, was there any uh, discussion about your ability to use it? A lot of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had basically Oak Investment Partners, the brand was going to end. Uh, and the thought was my tech partners would raise Oak Tech someday. And they, they never did that. So they would get Oak Tech brand. We would get Oak HCFT. OIP would sunset. And is that is that a decision that's lit? I'm sure each partner individually, uh, but is that th the founder of, of Oak or, or the, the senior most person? Was that the person that was able to kind of litigate the, the decisioning of that? Uh, because venture uh, firms are not known uh, in their totality for the ability to make these types of decisions. 
Well, even more complicated is we had four equal partners. I was one of the four equal managing partners. And so it was three people on the tech team negotiating with one person. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So you're in a corner there a little bit. Yeah. The vote, you probably didn't want to go to vote. Uh, maybe, maybe this is where your husband's career in politics helped it. And you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to filibuster until, we, until I get a little bit more time on the floor here. Exactly. Exactly. So it worked out, but it definitely took time. Because yeah. I, I, can, I can only imagine. So maybe... Uh, Maybe shifting gears a little bit on investment style. So uh, I, I heard I heard you say that in, in the early days, one of your we talked about the the people side of things. I, I think it was one of the founders or original partners of Oak said that you didn't focus enough on the the CEO yeah. or the or the people itself. Um, so I'd be interested in that that story or that lesson. And then um, stylistically, what is an Annie Lamont deal? So Jerry Gallagher, um, probably the greatest retail investor that ever existed and venture. Um, sadly, died young, uh, was probably my greatest mentor. We rattled off some of his deals, but uh, I mean, you, you had the laundry list, right? This is Whole Foods and Office Depot and PetSmart Depot, and all that. PetSmart, Dick's Sporting Goods, Jamba Juice, Ulta. Um, it was just, you know, on and on. Um, and he was, you know, fundamentalist. And, and I loved it because he came to me. It wasn't like he was giving me a review or anything. He was a partner. I was a partner, but he I was, it was early on. I'd been in the industry, I don't know, four years or something, five years. Uh, and he, yeah, he sat me down he said, you know, I, I, like he'd been the chairman of Dayton Hudson, a major uh, retail firm. He, he was the person that coined actually same store sales. He was the analyst at Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrett, a esteemed uh, uh, investment bank. Uh, and he was the, he was the retail analyst. Can you imagine like that never existed before? Um, and he said to me, um, you know, I just think, you need to focus on, like, you're very focused on tailwind, sway, model, you know, opportunity, and, and your bar isn't high enough, and your CEOs. And I was like, okay, that's, I, I really appreciate you saying that to me. Um, and it seems so, like, basic, huh? but just having him say it, somebody I respected, um, I was like, okay, I really I got to focus on that, and the rest of my career I have, and it's uh, definitely me in, in good stead. And I think it's not just because he was, I mean, good Midwestern guy too, from Minnesota. Uh, it was all about ethics and values. And like, that was like first bar, like make, you know, check that box with uh, the entrepreneur first. Uh, and to your point, and, you know, and deals you may or may not have done because of certain characteristics of an entrepreneur. I mean, I just, if there's any question, particularly in healthcare, because you are dealing with people's lives, and it is a mission that we believe in. Like, that's just the first cut. Like, high ethics, high value, you know, do you care? Uh, is this a, a mission to you when you get into healthcare? Um, and I think that he he led me to that, just that flipped a switch that was incredibly important. Are there tactics that you, you do to go about actually assessing that? Because it is... Uh, ethics and values and, and, uh, I mean, even, even CEO quality can be this ethereal thing. Uh, oftentimes ethics can be binary, right? Do you have it yeah. or, or do you yeah. not? But right. how, do you do reference checks, uh, from people that have worked with the person in the past? Do you just spend exhaustive time with them? How, how do you actually go about assessing that out? I think, I mean, one, I'm a, I'm a very instinctual investor. Um, there's no question. I mean, to me, it's just, um, I make judgments about people pretty quickly. Um, but yes, absolutely. We, I mean, I think the, the advantage to being in an ecosystem like healthcare or fintech is that you can very easily check people. I, we know so many people in the industry that there are 
And obviously our talent team was very helpful on this also. And that we uh, do extensive reference checking and back channeling on individuals. And, you know, part of it, obviously, it starts with uh, ethics and values and, and goes from there in terms of all their capabilities and skills and weaknesses and strengths that we hopefully can help to bolster as we're um, supporting them. Yeah. And what about, um, I guess, in the the healthcare industry, right? Now that you're making these investments in founders, what what areas, we talked about Payvider a little bit earlier, but are there specific areas that, uh, I guess, request for startup or, or anything along those lines, like big themes that, that have you particularly excited these days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yes. I mean, I think Payvider is number one, and, and that is, you know, 85% of the healthcare costs are in the provider side, right? I mean, it's all the caregiving that you know, that we all receive, whether it be you know, drugs or, or services. Um, and then 50% is with the payer. But the, the issue is that the provider is only incented to care about costs, really, and outcomes uh, if they're responsible for the total cost of care at some level. Uh, and so our view is we are, we want to, we want to take risks. We want to be invested in provider technology enabled uh, services. So on the provider side, but taking full risk. So taking the payer risk um, with that provider. So it often starts with, it could be, it could be in different disciplines, you know, cardiology, but we've started with primary care uh, companies like Galileo, Village MD, um, where we're focused on, um, uh, the caregiving from the primary care side. And that, that drives 70% of all downstream costs and managing those costs and then managing those outcomes. And a primary care doc doesn't have the capability to do that by themselves, although they need institutional support to do it. Um, and they don't even, you know, in terms of the choices that are made along the way, no doctor thinks about costs. No doc. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm a doctor who is often just, prescribing the brand. And I'm like, why didn't you describe the generic? That would have saved me $1,500, you know? And it's just not their job. Like they don't think that way. Um, and so you have to have an entity, an institution that does think that way and has the capability and has the capability to refer you to the right doctor that has the best outcomes um, at the lowest cost. And so like create, to me, this is a complete redesign of our healthcare system. And it's, you know, there are things that we can do it's from a software perspective we've invested in that make things more efficient, provide a better consumer experience. But it is this whole payvider model that devoted's coming at it. They started as a payer and then introducing devoted medical group as the sort of first virtual uh, provider, but then, you know, creating a, a network. I mean, to me, it's like unless you on the caregiving side, you can just you're whistling in the wind just being a payer. Like you can't, you can only affect so much. So. And, and so this at a, and I, I realize we have people that are probably on a, a journey or a spectrum of their, their healthcare knowledge in this, but so actually people, people generally know payers. That's, that's the insurance side and that right. the healthcare, the provider side is everyone right. from a, a hospital to, to all the other stuff that, that we've listed uh, that, that might happen. And so the way this actually works at a tactical level, if there's one example that you want to use, like where does the money come in? Where does the patients come in and what's the, the big unlock of going at risk uh, mm -hmm. from that perspective? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the, I mean, the unlock. So if you think about 
uh, you know, just the simplest model, you know, you're, you're got a primary care practice in your, you know, you're in your neighborhood, right? If that's part of a larger group that is supplying software and analytics around you as an individual or providing caregiving services beyond the doctor, providing, uh, you know, whether it's nurses that follow up, it's all about actually looking at you as an individual and then having care management and care coordination capabilities around you. So when you're, you know, like anticipating like an episode, so in the preventative care side, right? Dealing, you know, trying to look uh, preventatively at, at things. And then when there's an incident, managing it. So you're going to the lowest cost setting. You're going to the best doctor for that incident who has the lowest, if you have to go to hospital readmission rate, you know, on that. I mean, we were just looking at, not to factor off here, but we were just looking at data, you know, orthopedics for inpatient, for example, back surgery, inpatient spine surgery versus outpatient. And the readmission rate, so, you're, so having an incident 30 days later, we go back in the hospital, is three times as high if you have that surgery in a hospital across the country. So it's things like that. It's like knowing that, knowing the right provider that doesn't, you know, actually create more downstream costs, like managing that, that care coordination is absolutely fundamental. And then how do you, like a primary care group can't really just go to a payer like United Health or Humana or Aetna and say, great, give me a contract to manage all these people. No, you've got to have clout. You've got to have scale to do that. So we aggregated, you know, groups like a village of D, we've aggregated doctors all over the country in, you know, and in courts concentrated in particular geographies. And we go to the payers and we say, particularly in Medicare Advantage, like we'll take risk on these patients. We, you just, you give us a, a certain amount to manage them, a capitated amount each year, we'll manage them. And we'll guarantee you like 85%, like we'll guarantee you that we're you know, sort of 85, 85% of your total member uh, premiums. And then, you know, and then often we'll say 20 to 30% on those people, providing them actually better care inside the, you know, the provider entity. And, it, and it's going from uh, a system of fee-for-service, right? right. And, and we've talked a little bit about this on other episodes, but yeah. kind of moving from, hey, if you just do X, Y, Z, the incentives within the healthcare system right. are very broken as you think about it compared to any other industry, really, right? Maybe government at large has some right. equally perverse incentives. But the, the, the downstream impact of, hey, if I do X, and then uh, that would decrease the probability of why happening. But if the dollars don't play out, you have no incentive. It would be like doing marketing attribution for a B2B software company, uh, but not looking at how it went all the way through the cycle and did it actually convert customers or not, right? It's just the, the loop is not closed. And so the pay provider model, I guess, in my simple terms of thinking yeah. about it is basically saying, we're going to vertically integrate. We're going to right. take the risk ourselves right. that right. we can deliver better outcomes for you at a lower cost, right? So it is, it's trying to get those incentives back in alignment. It's all about financial alignment. You're absolutely right. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that example. I like that analogy. Good. Yeah. It's amazing that having someone that doesn't really understand uh, something explain it back, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it gets it really to the simplest terms of what, what it actually means, right? If you yeah. want to go a level deeper than that, I'm out. But I, I got I got that much here. So no, you're 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 dead on all about it's all about that virtuous cycle and the reality is it doesn't exist because right now people forget doctors are economic beings. 
you know, and they're going to, and, and it's also their, this is their practice. If they do back surgery, they do back surgery. Of course, the answer is, you know, do back surgery. You've got it. Hammer, the answer is a nail, you know? Um, so that's, that is absolutely true. And so that's why you need to put, uh, you need to put context around it. Now, one of the things uh, is, well, I mean, having, having you, you have this interesting perspective, right? Where you, uh, you, you know someone very well who happens to be in government. And, uh, and so you get some exposure, especially over the course of COVID, uh, in terms of yeah. how the healthcare system, I think people forgot how powerful governors actually were uh, until, until COVID and, and vaccine rollouts and all that stuff yeah, actually actually came to be, which it seems like Connecticut did a great job of. So, so kudos, I guess, uh, uh, to, to you all on uh, whatever whatever role you played in part sure. there. Uh, it seemed to have actually worked well, out. Well, I delivered well. up for a chief operating officer because he'd been the CEO of one of our companies. And so he ended up, he, when he was supposed to, you know, oversee all the departments and make everyone more efficient. And the reality was COVID came and he became his partner and basically running the entire COVID response. That was hugely helpful to have a business person actually understood healthcare you know, involved in the government system that I knew well, you know, could you know, communicate with, could help organize our hospital systems to actually have a uh, joint response. Um, so yeah, no, but you're right. It was amazing. I think that America learned so much about how important governors are in their states um, and, you know, what that means in America, how much they actually drive people's daily, you know, daily lives from energy to education to, you know, et cetera, healthcare. Um, so it was an incredible experience. And I think from my perspective, understanding um, hospital point of view, understanding the, you know, the dynamics there, understanding Medicaid, like just the administration of Medicaid in different states and understanding like we don't actually do managed Medicaid. 46 out of 50 states do manage Medicaid. We actually manage all Medicaid from the, at the state level. So just, you know, like understanding like the workings uh, from the governmental side has um, been really educational for me. And totally. Well, you, so now you had this purview into, uh, both the, the, the two biggest entities, I think that play in our healthcare system, the government and the private sector. Are there things that, uh, or a thing, if you could wave a magic wand, or if you could, yeah. uh, if, if you could change just, just one thing in the healthcare system itself, either a request for startup, Hey, uh, you know, Amazon bought one of your former companies, uh, one medical as well. Right. And so right. getting more of these big tech folks interested and aligned or, uh, universal healthcare or something on the other side, like, is there anything that exists that you, uh, you think is just a no brainer to help make sure that healthcare doesn't end up as a 45% cost uh, of GDP or something here in the next couple of right. years? Right. Right. Well, I do think this whole organization of a I think all primary care entities, frankly, should be independent of hospital systems. So I'll have some very unhappy hospital systems with me. But I think the reality is, is if, if as hospital systems, you own primary care, then you really have very little incentive unless you have all value-based contracts to not have those primary care docs incented to send people to the most expensive venue. I mean, the, it's really a cost center, a hospital, right? It's the last place you want anybody to go. And yet if you're a hospital system and you own primary care docs and they can't, they're not supposed to be referring elsewhere, then, uh, you know, I think you've, you created a massive disincentive in the market to go to the lowest cost setting to provide the best care. In the vertical integration there, I mean, it, we can we can think of analogies of of Microsoft back in the the late '90s or whatever, uh, and, and everything they did with bundling Internet Explorer versus Netscape, and probably come up with some anti 
trust type situations that exist in the in the private sector today. But the the simple example there is Logan sick. I go into my primary care doctor that I just I check in on and say, hey, what's going on? And he or she says, well, you need a a liver scan, right? And we need you right. to go do that. And the, if they're going to say, hey, if I'm a part of this hospital, go get the liver scan right next door. It's super easy. But that gives them an opportunity to maybe charge 5x the price of what it is just to walk across the block to go get that exact same liver scan, right? And as a patient, right. I have no desire, knowledge, one, of like right. what the different costs are because it's right. not reported right. very cleanly right. back to me. But right. two, no incentive. Like it's going to get a bill that goes to my insurance and the insurance is going to pay it or not, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll go against mm -hmm. my deductible. But right. I'm not like price shopping what that liver scan looks like. And so the doctor at this top of the funnel point has a ton of power and influence right. on where I can end up, right? Absolutely. And I, I always say it's like, you're a consumer when you're healthy, healthy and you're a patient when you're sick. Right. You don't like you go to a doctor, you're not. And yes, you know, people do research and they want to understand about their disease. But in terms of venue, I mean, you're just generally following what the doctor says. You're not really thinking about, oh, how can I price shop, as you say, the lowest cost venue? And how will I know they have great equipment? You know, like maybe you equate price with value, you know, like, oh, he's the most expensive doctor in the most expensive place. But again, you don't even know the price. Right? So it is, it's a completely, uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's not a transparent marketplace, right? No, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. And so, so is that the one that verticalization? And so then having all the primary cares, uh, independent, uh, from, from the system. And so therefore we would actually be a little bit more, the incentives would be more neutral rather than directly aligned. Right. Exactly. And the primary care is independent, but they're organized because I don't, I don't think individual primary care docs can actually influence much if they're not organized in a larger entity that's actually driving, measuring, you know, has the information systems, is measuring um, the outcomes, uh, and has the power to negotiate with payers. You have to, you have to have all those things. Um, and so, yes, like that, that would be a world where I think you'd actually start to change, uh, change things. I, I think also, I mean, just think about it, commercial employers are the ones that subsidize the healthcare system. You know, if you look at the rates they pay to hospital systems or doctors, you know, they're 2x what Medicare, sometimes 3x what the Medicare rate is. Uh, and somehow organizing the employer world. So they're taking risks there. You know, I, I don't know why it doesn't happen, um, but I do feel like employers should aggregate and they should negotiate. Uh, and they, they don't they don't do that. It's just it's other, it's other core business. One other thread, I guess, are you you're no longer involved with one medical, but you led the series a in the company. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so what, what's your perspective on uh, Amazon and I guess Apple is getting more into care. And is this a, is this a net good thing uh, for, for the industry? Well, it's interesting because if you think about it, one medical was like 14 years ago, we made that investment and it was changing just the consumer experience. It wasn't taking risk. It wasn't, it was just if, you know, wow, you could email your doctor on a weekend and get a prescription. You could have same day or next day service, you know, actually going to see a provider. If I was traveling to San Francisco from New York, they'd have my lab, you know, they'd actually have 
in the EHR there and, and know what would, had been done to me in, you know, in New York City. So how would you describe, by the way, that original investment thesis? I, I guess I, yeah. I, I assume people know what it is, but maybe not. Like what was the original? It, it was just, uh, hey, let's use tech and provide a subscription service to people to deliver a more competent uh, primary care experience. That was that was it. It was really it's a lousy primary care experience, and we can create a better one. And Jerry Gallagher was, you know, involved in that investment, our, our retail investor, because it was a combination. It was re, it was healthcare, but it was also a better retail experience, effectively. Um, and then that's as simple as it was. And that's the amazing thing is, you know, it has taken all this time, and they've built out across the country. It was a hard bill, but it's still, it is still a premium experience for a consumer, right? I mean, it's amazing how uh, dated the experience is at, at most uh, primary care facilities. So the interesting thing to me, I, you know, I'm, I love that Amazon, it is interesting that Amazon bought Whole Foods and this, but that Amazon uh, is put, you know, that, that button to go to One Medical was immediately on the website, the, you know, the day after they, they bought the company. And I do think from a consumer experience and rolling that out, that is a good thing. But they also have this, you know, One Medical bought Iora, and that's, that is that is a pay provider. I don't think Amazon has any idea what they're going to do with that. You know, it doesn't, like, this is the future, but uh, they're not a healthcare company. Uh, and, you know, like figuring out how to deal with Medicare Advantage, take risk, manage it, grow it. Uh, they're going to have to like create a whole other infrastructure for that. One question we've had uh, as we think through the, these different healthcare enabled services companies is ultimately what is the end state that these things are are actually valued at, right? Because yeah. there is yeah. it, it's service, right? At the, it, there's elements that can be scalable in a much more linear way, like a Facebook or a Salesforce.com, but. There's elements that need CapEx intensity right around it. You actually, one medical needs to build facilities. You need uh, doctors. You don't just need engineers. You need right. people that can actually go on site. We've seen a range of uh, these outcomes that have occurred. Uh, obviously, Oak Street Health, uh, $10 billion outcome for, for Medicare Advantage that's happened here in the last couple uh, couple months. And then one medical. Is this... Do you think that the the answer is, hey, maybe not at the SaaS enterprise software multiples that exist, but uh, if you're taking the risk, then there should be better margins associated with it? Or how do you think about the business? Well, you know, they're they're all done a little differently, but you're right. A lot of these are service businesses and they're going to be more capital intent. They're not going to be SaaS businesses. So I said we do some that are like pure services, pure SaaS, I mean, pure, pure SaaS and others that aren't pure service, but they're service taking risk. And I think what happens if, if you're just fee for service, right? It would just be the revenues of fee for service and the margins you get from that. If you are, if you're a service entity provider that's taking risk, then the reality is you actually, you know, I would say you probably three X, four X the revenues that you're getting. And ultimately the margins are lower, but the scale is so enormous. I mean, if you think about United Health as an entity, I mean, that has grown more in the last 20 years. Their multiple is more than Google, has grown more than Google. So, I mean, it's kind of amazing. But when you, you know, you just think about the hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, uh, the trillions of dollars spent in healthcare. And, you know, if you can become, you can, the scale of these things are enormous. So, I mean, what we like about it is you can really create massive scale. Yes, more capital intensive. 
at times, but if you can have scale of you know, the capital intensivity of the provider and then the payer element too, you know, it, it, it does give a multiple on the basic provider model. If you want to be mad about the American healthcare system, just you look at United Health stock price uh, over uh, how it's traded and watch how linearly it's gone up over the years. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a frustrating thing. Um, but yeah. uh, no, it makes sense. The, the changing of this provider model obviously aligns incentives in a, in a better way and can get more of the top line revenue and and uh, uh, all that makes sense. One, one last one before I let you hop. Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, you had one experience with Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, and, and, uh, she was in, uh, I guess you could say healthcare broadly, broadly speaking, but can you tell the story of your Elizabeth Holmes, uh, experience at a, at a conference? And it sounds like she never pitched you, but, uh, yeah, just your perspectives on that. No, in fact, I think she avoided VCs. She might have to really understand what she was doing. So, yeah, so I was speaking at a Forbes conference in New York city uh, and I, you know, I'd left my purse in the green room. And so I come out after I speak and Elizabeth Holmes is, I guess, speaking after me. So I tried to go into the green room and there are like four big bodyguards standing out the side the door. Uh, and they're like, no, 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 you cannot go in again. I'm like, what the hell is going on there? Well, Elizabeth Holmes was inside the green room and she took four bodyguards with her at all times, apparently. And so I literally stood there for an hour. I like, you know, they wouldn't let me in the room, uh, you know, to get my purse. So I eventually got it and left there. But I was like, who the hell is this woman? I didn't even know who the hell, you know, was she and why? Why does she need four bodyguards? I mean, it was so crazy. She was, she was getting her voice right for, uh, so she could talk in that, that deeper baritone, that baritone voice. voice. Did you, as all that came out, like, did you feel like this just smelled off? And it's, I realize she didn't pitch you, but uh, did, did after you did a little research on this, were you like, this just doesn't exactly feel right? Well, yeah. So when I looked at, I mean, in part, because anybody who is working to get the people around her that she got to raise the money from, you know, where she raised, I mean, clearly this is somebody who had a pension toward secrecy, didn't want to, it's, you know, it's, again, it's like FTX-like, right? You know, in the sense that you're not, I mean, maybe there were VCs there, but there wasn't the sharing of information, right? And so anytime somebody is unwilling to do that, there's usually a reason for that. Um, and, I, you know, it's obviously very sad. She was one of the, there weren't that many entrepreneur, female entrepreneurs at that time. And I think that people were giving her the benefit of doubt. You know, men were really excited about, you know, funding the next Steve Jobs in healthcare, um, and unfortunately, she, be, she was a fraud, you know, and that's really sad because that always sets back uh, all of our causes. She, she uh, in a weird way, like the, the stuff the, uh, that people say from a uh, bias standpoint, like women are much more factual and realistic in their pitches. Right, she right, had all right. the opposite qualities of that, right? It was like the end of the spectrum right. of all of the right. things that, you know, you yeah. would typically characterize this like ambitious, brash male CEO telling the story that might not be true, but, uh, and it's, a, it's a shame that, um, it is. it's like, no, no, don't adopt all the bad habits of, you know, like, you know, totally. Like, she, yeah. she learned all Steve Jobs' worst lessons, I guess, uh, in not wearing suits. And uh, back in that roadshow, she would probably would have gotten yelled at uh, as well. But much easier to take advantage, I think, of Betsy DeVos or, or uh, Rupert Murdoch or whoever else was on her cap table than Sequoia. <laughs> so in some ways, I give SBF more credit for uh, his willingness to go after the venture community. Uh, right. Than, right. Than- no, yeah, he was... 
he was so bold, you know, he thought uh, that he could fool everyone, right? Uh, and maybe she wasn't, uh, you know, as bold. She wasn't as convinced. So. It's a shame. I, I think both of those stories are going to be tough to top. I feel like, uh, especially with FTX, we got, we got the, the, the nothing's going to beat that. It, there's going to be a lot more frauds that come out, but we really got the dessert at the end, right? It was yeah. like, this yeah. should have been a slow build to the FTX story. We should have gotten like a little incremental, like a billion dollar startup goes out of business and then a fraud here or there. It's a shame we got that one so upfront because I feel like everything else is going to, my senses have been dulled to future fraud. Yeah. But. Yeah. This is true. Well, I don't know. We, we needed, I guess something popped, uh, not only the Chinese balloon, but the, you know, the whole, a crypto balloon that's right unfortunately so yeah. well good well annie thanks for doing this this is great just for context we're hopping back on right now because annie started to say how my partners wanted to fi fire me in 99 which i i, I kind of got the feeling if bio if you're pivoting sectors it's generally not from a position of strength so wait what was what was that you know i mean back to the like 98 99 if you weren't making 50 to 100 times your money on a deal, right? It was like, well, what what purpose did you serve? And basically, they just wanted to excise healthcare from the repertoire of the firm. And like, I was, said, we did an offsite, we're in Cabo. It's not my favorite place now because we were in Cabo. And by the fire, one of my partners like, so like, you're probably, you're not going to be part of the next fund, you know? <laughs> So they kind of like delivered the message. But by the time the next fund came, like, you know, a year later, it was like the world had blown up, you know, all their deals that they thought were so incredible, you know, deflated. And it was like, and they wanted to raise a big fund after all the great returns, you know, we'd had the last decade. And so they came back and it's like, you know, it'd be great. You know, like, I mean, they acted like they'd never said it, you know, like, oh, great. Well, you know, we'll have healthcare. We'll have this like powerful healthcare practice. I'm like, well, it changed, you know, what I'm doing in healthcare. Um, and yeah, so that inspired me. This is, you know, one of the reasons I did FinTech too, because it was like, okay, I'm going to have a little bit more, you know, like uh, diversity, you know, broader platform. And I know obviously then intellectual curiosity drove me to it too, but it's just so funny because it's you know, self-preservation, you know? Totally. I had a, uh, I had a similar, I guess, I don't know, two years into my career, my boss, uh, at the time I had been on the job for six months and he sat me down and said, Hey, this this really isn't working out. Uh, and, uh, and then the next, like literally two days later or something, uh, this big deal came through that I had, uh, almost single-handedly won and we never spoke about it again. I just yeah. kept, I just kept showing up to work every day and it was, it was pretty funny. Like had yeah. that not happened, I probably would have been looking for, for a job, but I, uh, yeah, I mean the ability, the timing of all that stuff and the serendipity to be able to, find a new sector. Were there proof points in healthcare that were actually working uh, by the time the next fund came around? Or was it that everyone was licking their wounds and and so the change would have been too disruptive? Yeah, yeah. No, it was interesting. I mean, the, the next fund was like 2001, I think. So that was like immediate or, yeah, 2000, 2001. So like market had just started crashing and, and, you know, they wanted continuity and we were going to raise bigger and bigger funds. And so needed people like bodies, around, you know, and then the follow it, it was fun. Then a fun, you know, the next fund, um, it wasn't even that Athena, you know, Athena we'd done in 2000 and that was beginning to work, but it wasn't, didn't go public till 2007. Um, so it was actually like net spend, you know, looked like this enormous win at that, you know, at that it was like my FinTech, you know, deal actually weirdly that was that. And, you know, one other thing, and it's like that helped us raise that fund. 
um, because it was um, on the rest of like 500, $600 million win on a whatever, $20 million check. So luck and survivorship bias and good intuition, right? Like had, had they raised that fund six months earlier or yeah. something, it's yeah. uh no, yeah, yeah, no, time, timing is everything. Yeah. And, but you're right. Like just, you know, sticking it out too. And, and, you made good. You made good on it for them. I uh, yeah, it, it, it all worked out for both you and uh, and them right. and that. But yeah. what uh, what what a funny like serendipitous thing. Yeah, it is. Well, it is. Well, life is that way, isn't it? And investing is that way, right? Yeah. One of the things I found is that you delude yourself too much into what is you versus what is right place, right time, what circumstance, oh, yeah. and all that. It feels like you have a pretty humble attitude about all this, despite your immense success and all the companies you've invested. No, in. you got. You know what? You, you got to earn it every day, right? You just you got to be in the game. You got to earn it. You got to feel like you have to. <laughs> there's right. a scoreboard, right? There's a right. scoreboard at entry, and there's a scoreboard at exit, and everyone uh, can can assess, you know, what those what those data points look like. So yeah. yeah. Well, that's one thing I love about the business, and I think it's what's great about being anybody, but being a woman too, right? It, it was always about performance at the end of the day. So it's uh, as you say, there is a scoreboard, not that qualitative. It's it's pretty quantitative. Well, Andy, thank you. So that'll do it for the 58th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Thank you to Annie Lamont for coming on. Thank you to Rashad and Sam for their efforts with the production. And thank you, everyone, for listening, for uh, liking and uh, five-starring on the platform that they're listening on, as well as subscribing to YouTube. We really appreciate that. We're trying to grow the numbers. And so thanks, everyone, for listening in. Look forward to seeing you next week on the 59th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Have a good weekend, everyone.